Good morning again, everybody. Please uh, find a Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Luke 19. There are red Bibles, should be somewhere on the row that you're in, back of the seat in front of you maybe. And you can turn to Luke 19 there or scan your QR code that's on the, on the bulletin if that's helpful for you. But would love to have you following along. <clears throat> uh, this morning we're in our third week of a series called Vertigo. Uh, a series that is going to take us right up to Easter Sunday, to Resurrection Sunday morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what we're doing uh, for these weeks is we're looking at these disorienting stories of Jesus called parables. As we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, parables aren't just cute stories with a heavenly meaning. They're actually stories that are meant to disrupt something, uh, to, to sort of break apart some of the ways that we have seen the world so that we can begin to see the world in a new way called the kingdom of God. And so we want to let these stories that Jesus tells, these words uh, have access to us, to op- open ourselves to them so that we can, if there are ways that we're holding on to things that maybe aren't true or, or misconceptions about God or what God is up to in the world, that we want to open our hands to say, God, we, we want to, to hold our ideas loosely. And, um, and I hope that's where we are this morning as we come to, to this particular story in Luke chapter 19. Now remember, again, as we talked about uh, last week, all these stories we're looking at over the next couple of weeks are on the way to Jerusalem. That Jesus tells each one of these parables uh, f- from Luke 9 onward. When, when he, all of a sudden in Luke 9, he turns his face toward Jerusalem. And as his disciples are following him through Samaria and on the road to Jerusalem, Jesus tells these parables about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And so... Um, This morning's parable comes uh, from Luke 19, and it's a bit of a difficult one, obviously. It's called the parable of the ten minas. Some translations say the pound, parable of the pounds. Um, And so it's uh, take a a bit of unpacking. But what I want to do here at the very beginning is just set up the context a little bit for you, uh, for us. This story uh, takes place in the city of Jericho. City of Jericho, that Jesus, he, in Luke 19, verse 1, it says, Jesus enters the city of Jericho, and he's planning on passing through. He's headed to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, he's been telling people he's going to give his life. He is going to, he's going to, in fact, be killed. He's going to give up his life in Jerusalem on the cross. And so, before he gets to Jerusalem, he stops in Jericho. Now, Jericho is about 17 miles from Jerusalem. Has anybody been to Jericho? Has anybody been to Israel? Um, I don't know if any of you have. Have you been to Jericho? Awesome. So, uh, talk to Shanae about it after the service. Uh, Some people will walk from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's about 17 miles. It's uphill. And so, um, that's where Jesus is. And he comes into to Jericho, and he's passing through, but there's this kind of parade of people along with him because of what Jesus is about to do in Jerusalem, what they think he's about to do. And Jesus encounters this guy up in a tree who's looking for an opportunity to see him. His name is Zacchaeus, right? And Jesus calls him out of the tree and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. Coming over for lunch. 
Uh, I want, we want to be obedient to the word of Jesus, and so today, before you leave here, I want you to find somebody. I want you to just tell them, I'm coming to your house for lunch today. Uh, just, it's kind of reverse hospitality, just we're going to practice this and see how this goes as a church, so do that before you leave. Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus gladly welcomes him. And through the course of a conversation, Zacchaeus is transformed. Jesus ends the story, ends the conversation by saying, Today salvation has come to your house, Zacchaeus. It's an amazing story. Um, Now, in Jericho, there are these echoes we hear from a story in the Old Testament of Jericho. Does anybody remember a story from the Old Testament that included the city of Jericho? Do you remember the story when Joshua took over leadership of God's people? Uh, Moses has sort of run his course. Um, His time of leadership is over, and he turns over the mantle of leadership to this guy named Joshua. And Joshua, um, he leads the people through the Jordan River after they've been wandering in the desert, the wilderness, for 40 years, learning how to trust God. Uh, learning how to trust him for their provision, for bread in the morning, that their shoes aren't going to wear out, that God is going to lead them through cloud, a cloud during the day and fire at night. They're learning to trust God. But now under Joshua's leadership, they cross the Jordan River, and for the first time ever, they come into the land that was promised to Abraham. Uh, the land that God is going to place them in so that they can bless the world from this particular place. And they come into the land, and what's the first city they encounter after crossing the Jordan? It's Jericho, right? So, a couple of really interesting things. Jesus, the name Jesus in Hebrew is the same name as Joshua. Exactly the same. Um, Yeshua is is this... um, it's just sort of a different pronunciation of the Hebrew name Joshua. So when Jesus walks into Jericho, you have a returning Joshua leader coming into Jericho, leading God's people on the way to Jerusalem. So you have this echo. In the first story of Joshua leading the people in the Old Testament, God is king at this point. What happened in the wilderness at Mount Sinai was God became king of the people. Joshua wasn't the king. He was just God's spokesperson. He was the leader of the people, but God very clearly was king. Who fought the battle to to win the city of Jericho? God did. I mean, people didn't raise a weapon. God was the the, the king. He was the one who was going to fight for them. All they had to do was stand still. And so God is king with Joshua, but when Jesus walks into Jericho, God is king again, but this time he's king in the person of Jesus. The very next passage after Luke 19, the end of Luke 19 says Jesus comes into Jerusalem as king. He's king. God is king now through Jesus. One other similarity here is in the Old Testament story of Joshua, there is an outcast who's saved. Anybody remember her name? A prostitute in Jericho who helped God's people some trickery. She actually lied, but God kind of looked the other way. Her name was Rahab, right? Do you remember the story of Rahab? She was a prostitute, and at the end of the story, she and her whole household were saved. At the end of Jesus' time in Jericho, another outcast named Zacchaeus, a tax collector, not a prostitute, a tax collector, is saved. Salvation has come to his house. We should hear these stories with echoes from the Old Testament that God is doing something similar to what he had been doing in the Old Testament through this first Jericho experience. 
So now Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, and expectations about what he was going to accomplish couldn't have been higher. I mean, he was going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and the Passover was the memory of God saving his people from slavery in Egypt. And and they had these expectations that there's this guy named Jesus who his, his prominent message has been the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom, the government, the reign, the rule of God is in your midst. It's here. It's among you. That's been his message. And so they are anticipating that what's going to happen when Jesus, this king, comes into Jerusalem, he is going to sort of storm the gates, he's going to come into the temple, he's going to cleanse the temple, and he is going to set on David's throne, and he is going to rule uh, the, the world from God's city in Jerusalem. He is going to uh, sort of push the Roman oppressors, just like he had done the Egyptians all those years earlier. He's going to push them out, and he's going to set Israel up as the power in the world, and he's going to judge Israel's enemies, and God's kingdom is going to come in its fullness. Finally, the Jews, the Israelites, will have their day when the kingdom comes. But what happens when Jesus gets to Jerusalem? The week doesn't end with him sitting on a throne. The week ends with him nailed to a cross. I mean, this Jesus, like, he's the one who had the power to heal people. He had the power to feed people. In fact, there are even these rumors spreading, right, that uh, throughout the city of Galilee, that as he cleanses demons from people, that the demons sort of cry out, say, we know who you are. You're the Messiah, the King who is to come. And these This word has been spreading. Expectations could not have been higher. People have come from all over, from all over the region to come to Jerusalem to welcome Jesus as their king because the kingdom of God is coming here and now. And the week would end with disciples dejected, like all was lost, walking the long road back to Emmaus, hanging their heads because their hope was in vain. Or so it seemed. That's the, set, that's the scenario here. And Jesus tells this parable as they leave Jericho to help to dislodge and prepare people for the kingdom coming not in the ways they expected it to come. So listen to this story. It says, while they were still listening to this, he went on to tell, tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to come, was going to appear at once. Here's the story. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king. Then he returned. So he called uh, ten of his ser- uh, excuse me. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. A mina is about a hundred days' wages for the average worker in the day. And he said to them, "Put this money to work. Do business with this money until I come back." But some of his subjects hated him. And they sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. But he was made king, however, and he returned home. Then he sent for his servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had done with it, what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, he said. Uh, Come, take charge of ten cities. The second one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. He answered, Take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, uh, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth because I was afraid of you. 
Because you're a hard man, you take from what you did not put in, and you reap from what you did not sow. And the master replied, then I will judge you by your own words. You wicked servant, you knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I didn't put in, reaping what I didn't sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit, so that when I came back, I could have at least collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But to those enemies of mine bring them, who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slay them in front of me. Let's pray. God, uh, this is <clears throat> your word. And so God, re- recognize that this is a difficult passage and we struggle to make sense and we have lots of questions still about it, but God, we trust that there is truth. We trust that um, you have life in these words for us. And so God, Uh, We open ourselves to them and to your Holy Spirit and what you want to say to us this morning through them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Jesus tells this parable because people had a misunderstanding of the kingdom. And he wanted to prepare them. That yes, the kingdom was coming. Yes, his message is the kingdom of God is here and now it is at hand. It is in your midst. You can enter it. And yet, there's going to be a delay. There's going to be a, like sort of a meantime between when the kingdom is inaugurated through his death and resurrection and when the kingdom is consummated, when it really comes in its fullness when Jesus returns from being made king. So he tells them this parable to kind of help them understand that their expectations are not the way it's actually going to turn out to be. Um, now, in Jesus' day, everybody would have known Herod. Have you heard of Herod? Herod the Great, right? That's, that's the way we know him, Herod the Great. Um, Herod was not so great, not so great at all. Um, Herod, in, in 40, 40 years before Christ, 40 BCE, Herod had left his home and he had traveled to Rome. He traveled to Rome to petition Caesar to make him king of Judea. And so um, he was granted the title king of the Jews. So Herod is king of the Jews from 40 BC on. Herod is called Herod the Great because he was a great architect. He was an absolutely awful person, an awful leader. Uh, Herod, not a nice guy at all. His family was a mess. He married 10 or 11 times. not exactly sure how many. He had somewhere around 40 to 45 children. Uh, He only had one woman that he ever truly loved. And he married her when she was about 15 years old, but um, had five children with her. But somewhere toward the end of his life, he started to get suspicious of her that she was like maybe plotting against him. And so he had her executed. This is the only woman he's ever really loved, has her killed. And he didn't like her mother all that well either, so he has his mother-in-law executed as well. Um, two of their sons, he thought, were like kind of plotting for power, and so he's very insecure at this point. He has both of them executed. Uh, Herod, not a nice dude. You know the story of John the Baptist. He has John the Baptist beheaded. You know the story of Jesus as a child. He's insecure because he thinks his throne is in danger. He has, you know, all these babies uh, around Bethlehem region killed, these baby boys. Uh, Herod was a bit of a jerk, uh, understatement of the year. Uh, when Herod was close to dying, when Herod was close to dying, he, he knew that people were not going to miss him. 
and he had a disease. He knew his life was almost over. So he, he had his followers gather up 50 prominent Jews, uh, prominent leaders in the community. He had them sort of sequestered in the palace. And he gave the order that on the day he died, all of them should be executed as well because Herod wanted people to cry on the day he died and he knew nobody would mourn for him. This is Herod the Great. Now, Herod, after he died, he, one of his, you know, however many of the children, 43 who had been born, were still left, are now sort of, is really uncertain of who's going to take power from Herod, who's going to take the throne. So there's this um, one of the sons named Archilus. He ends up going, like his father had done 40 years earlier, to Rome to say, would you give me the kingdom of my father? He goes to a foreign land, He's a man of noble birth, petitions the king, Caesar, to say, would you make me king in place of Herod? Um, This guy, Archilus, he actually makes an appearance in the scriptures in Matthew chapter 2, verse 22, when Jesus and his mom, Mary and Joseph, were coming back after they had been refugees in Egypt, coming back. It says, but when they heard that Archilus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there because he was just like his dad. Uh, and having been warmed in a dream, he was, was drew to the district of Galilee. Archelaus was, a, was another horrible man. And so when he went, after Herod died, when he went to Rome to stand before Caesar to be made king, there was a delegation of Jews, about 50 people, they say, who followed him, who petitioned Caesar to said, we don't want this man to be our king. But he was made king. And he returned And you can imagine he didn't deal very nicely with those who had petitioned Caesar against him. Everybody would have known the story. Everybody would have known this this history. When Jesus is telling the story, they would have known Herod. They would have known Archelaus. They would have, have known there is a connection between what Jesus is saying about this historical reality and what he is comparing to his own kingdom. So we have to keep that in mind. So Jesus says, here's the deal. I am going to be king But I'm going to have to go and I'm going to follow this same sort of route to royalty where I'm going to go to a distant land and I'm going to be gone for a period of time. At least it's going to appear that way. And I'm going to receive the authority to be king, to rule. And while I'm gone, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to entrust you with resources to carry on my work. I'm going to entrust you with, with resources, with abilities, with, uh, with stuff to be able to do business. He uses his business, this tra- do transactions in my name while I'm gone. So this story is about. It's about being entrusted to carry on the work of Jesus in this meantime while he is not with us in body. Um, can you imagine a world where there was political instability? Like where you're waking up in the morning thinking like, I wonder what's going to happen today, right? Where there's this sort of this like, feels like ground is shifting underneath you. Can you just imagine a world like that for a second? Um, it might take some work. Um, <clears throat> that was the world of the day. So imagine Jesus telling the story and imagine the, the, the people in the story who received the entrustment of 100 days wages. And they were given the instructions, put it to good use, carry on business in the name of the king, trusting that he's going to return and be king. But what if he's not? 
Like, what if the delegation of people who hate him and don't want him to be king, what if they succeed? And what if you're here and you have this entrustment of resources and you open up a business? Like, and you open up, you know, his majesty's laundromat or whatever it is. You know, you open up a, his majesty's hungry man's burger joint or whatever, whatever the case may be. And you have the king's name on your business and everybody knows you're identified with him. Your allegiance is to him. And what happens if he doesn't get made king? What happens if he doesn't return? And what happens if his enemies are actually the ones holding power? What's, gonna, what's it going to cost you? Everything. It's going to cost you your business. It's probably going to cost you your money. It's probably going to cost you your life. So Jesus, one of the things he's saying in this parable is he's gauging how much confidence do we have in who Jesus says he is and in the truth that he is actually king of heaven and earth and he is, in fact, returning to rule and to reign. And will we, like with sort of bold confidence and faithfulness, will we put our allegiance with him? Will we... Will we sell everything and say, my allegiance is with you and I am all in, or will we hold back and hedge our bets because we're not exactly sure how it's going to turn out? I submit to you this parable is not so much about profits. It's not so much about your expertise as a capitalist. Um, It's not so much about how you are working, burning the candle at both ends to make a profit. But this parable is much more about our faithfulness to be identified with the king. Uh, notice when, when the king returns and he looks at the, the people, he calls them before him, and there are three of them. The first two, do you notice what they say? They say, your mina has earned ten more. Your mina has earned five more. They don't say, hey, Jesus, here's the deal. I um, I've been working really hard, like I, I, I read all these sort of business entrepreneurial books and uh, started up these, these great enterprises and I hired great staff and I did all this amazing stuff and so we have a 1,000% profit, you know, we have a 500% profit. They, there's, this, there's this humble submission that says, your resources have earned 10 more. Your resources have earned five more. There's this, <clears throat> there's this beautiful humility to what they say where they were very clearly involved in the work, but it wasn't just their work. It wasn't just their expertise. It was God's work. It was God's resources. They were co-workers with God. We are co-workers with God. That we've been given like an entrustment of of resources. We've been given the Holy Spirit. Why? To, To put into work to carry on the ministry of Jesus in this meantime when the kingdom of God is inaugurated. It is here and now. It is breaking into this world. And yet, it doesn't, we don't see it in its fullness. In this meantime, between the cross and the return of Christ, we are, are called to be co-workers with God. Uh, this is what the New Testament says. Take a look at, at 1 Corinthians. Um, at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 to, to 9, it says, Paul is using this co-worker's metaphor. He says, I planted the seed. I did work. I planted the seed, and Apollos did work. He watered it, but it's God who's making it grow. Verse 9, he says, for we are co-workers in God's service, and you are God's field, God's building. We are God's co-workers. There's this humble submission to say, God, it is your resources that are 
are bringing the yield, are, are bearing fruit. But we're involved in it too. We have, we have actual work to do. See, the danger <clears throat> is when we think that the way the kingdom of God is going to come is in one direction. It's God is going to bring it, and that's the only way it's going to happen. Is you know what happens with us? And we're really tempted to just sort of put our hands in our pockets and whistle Dixie and wait till it happens. Maybe don't whistle Dixie, I don't know. Um, I can't whistle very well at all, so it's a bad, bad metaphor for me. Um, but we just wait. We're just, we're just going to wait. God's going to do his thing. And God says, no, no, no. My, my plan all along is to give you authority, is to, is to give you work to do, meaningful work to do in my kingdom. From beginning to end, the Bible, God is not somebody who's, who's sort of uh, power-hungry and holding on to authority, but he, he takes joy in giving his authority away to his people. In fact, what is the reward for faithful use of the entrustment? It's not a vacation spot on the coast somewhere. It's not like, uh, you know, uh, it's not wealth, it's not health, it's not any of that stuff. What does he give to them after they say, your mind has produced ten more, five more? He says, come, take charge of ten cities. You're getting more authority. See, the kingdom of God, it's not about production. It's not about um, how, how, how great you are at using these abilities. It's about our faithfulness. And when we prove faithful, God just simply entrusts us with more authority, more authority. The reward in the kingdom of God is authority, and it's a, um, it's a beautiful thing. So this is what Jesus is doing. He's calling us into coworkers. He's calling us to say, in the meantime, you have work to do. Uh, for example, in, in Acts chapter 1, in Acts 1, um, Jesus is, is raised from the dead. And in Acts 1, it says that Jesus has been appearing to his disciples for 40 days, and he's been teaching them. Anybody remember what he's been teaching them about in Acts 1, Luke says in Acts 1? The kingdom of God. He spent 40 days with his disciples teaching them about the kingdom of God, the reign of God coming to earth as it is in heaven. And in Acts 1, chapter 6, there's this really kind of funny uh, story where the disciples are like, <clears throat> but wait, Jesus, like, is it now? finally, like now are you going to bring your kingdom? Is, now is it going to be restored to Israel? Lord, are you at this time going to restore your kingdom to Israel? And Jesus like just says, stop asking that question. Like that's, that's not the question on the table. The question on the table is how are you going to witness to my reign? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you are going to be my witnesses that I am already king that I am king in heaven and I am king on earth. And as you are faithful to use your entrustment to put to use the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you to carry on my ministry, then my kingdom will come more and more on earth as it is in heaven. Is the kingdom coming? Yes. Is it here fully? No. No. Partly because you and I have work to do and partly because Jesus is going to consummate it when he returns. And so we're, we're in... This meantime, um, Tim Gettert, it's actually a guy named Joel Marcus. Um, his definition of the kingdom of God is God at work. What is the kingdom of God? If you're going to answer the question, what is, God, what is the kingdom of God? Joel Marcus would say the kingdom of God is God's activity. It's God at work. It's movement. It's dynamic. The kingdom of God isn't something you step into and something you can step out of. The kingdom of God is movement of God's will being done, <clears throat> of God's 
rain coming on earth. And so for us, how do we get in the kingdom of God is we step in line with God's movement. We bring our resources and we entrust them to what God is already doing. That's what it looks like to be in the kingdom is we step into this dynamic movement. It's not just a boundary that we step over. So there is this amazing, amazing call to partner with what God is doing in the world. This is the work. I think this is the main point of the parable. Now, there is, um, there is this call. There is, the difficult part of this parable is about the judgment. The judgment of the man who says, you know what, I was kind of afraid of you, so I just, I hid it. I don't didn't, I want to be on the wrong side. It's probably more accurate that he was afraid he wouldn't return. But he kind of says, I was afraid of you, I, whatever. And so it's pretty clear he misjudged the master's character. Master in the story doesn't appear to be one who's power-hungry and grabby. He just entrusts his servants. And so you, you have this man who comes and opens his hands and he says, unfolds the cloth. And he says, here's the mine. I didn't do anything with it. I didn't, I was scared. And there's judgment and the judgment is his entrustment is, is taken away. It's taken away and it's given to, to the one who was faithful. So there is judgment. Uh, there's also judgment by the way, the, the judgment then on this man, the third servant, who, who, had no, who had done nothing with the entrustment, you know what his judgment is? It says, you thought that I was a hard man, that I was a crook, that I you know, sort of took from people what I didn't deserve and all of that. And so what's going to happen is I'm going to leave you with that perception. I'm going to leave you with that perception. I'm going to judge you by your own words. This is how you saw me, so I'm just going to leave you with that. That's the judgment. And there's this amazing uh, passage in, in Psalm 18. In Psalm 18, verses 25 to 26, that says, To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the devious, you show yourself shrewd or twisted. What does this mean? Does it mean that God is shrewd and twisted to those who are shrewd and twisted? Well, I think it means that if we are that kind of person, that's how we perceive God to be. So this person was so shaded by his view of unfaithfulness, of who he was, of being an unjust person, that he couldn't help but see Jesus in that same way. So to the pure, God is pure. To the blameless, God is blameless. But to the person who is hard-hearted and shrewd and twisted, God appears to be shrewd and twisted. And the judgment on this person is you're, you're just going to stay. I'm going to judge you by your own words, by your own perception. You're going to keep, keep this lens on that sees me as a crooked and twisted person. And then what do we do with the last, couple of ver- the last verse here that says, but for those people who opposed my reign, who actively opposed the coming of the kingdom of God, those people who worked against me in the world, my kingdom of justice and love and peace in this world, what do I do with those people? What do we do with this last verse that says, where the, the master says, come and kill them in front of me? It's like incredible judgment. I would love to just sort of skip over that. And honestly, scholars, they do all sorts of different things with it, and I don't have great answers. But we do know that there's judgment like, Jesus isn't all just, like, picking up little sheep and putting them over his shoulder and calling the children. I mean, there is that. That is his heart, his character. But there is also judgment. Jesus isn't just a grandfather who loves to give chocolate chip cookies to his kids. He's also the Lord of heaven and earth. 
right? He, he is the king, and, and there is justice. And for those who persist in doing injustice, in harming others, in perpetuating violence in the world, there's judgment. And he pronounces judgment. He says, those people who actively oppose my reign, bring them. And he tells them what their, what their judgment is. It's death. But the story doesn't end with them actually being killed, does it? It ends with the, pronounce, the pronouncement of judgment. Here's what you deserve. Bring them and kill them in front of me. But the story ends before they're actually killed. So there's some open-endedness to it. Most of Jesus' stories are open-ended. We don't know what happened to the older brother standing out in the field, do we? Did he reconcile with the father and come back into the party? We don't know. Jesus, he, he leaves these stories open-ended to say, if I've been the kind of person who is actively opposing God's reign in my life, in, in the world, if I'm working against it, I know there is judgment. And, and that's what the punishment is. That's what I deserve And there is this open-ended sense of, will my heart turn? Will I turn and will I surrender my life to Jesus as King? And will I begin to use the entrustment of the Holy Spirit? Will I begin to use the entrustment of the resources God has given me to work for what God is doing in the world called the Kingdom of God? Jesus, he's not so much interested in how successful we are. He's interested in how faithful we are. A church can look really successful on the outside and be really unfaithful in the kingdom of God. You can have a lot of people. You can draw huge crowds of people. And and really, the kingdom, as God looks at it through the lens of the kingdom of God, there's really not much of value happening there. Because the metrics God uses are very different. So success is is not God's metric. Faithfulness is. And so the question this parable leaves us with is, how are we being faithful? Someone asked Mother Teresa, toward the end of her life, uh, said, you know, Mother Teresa, as you serve the dying here on the streets of Calcutta, and as you give them dignity and care for them in their final days, how do you keep doing it when you look around at the need and you realize you will never be done? Like, you'll never finish this work. And Mother Teresa's answer was this, God didn't call me to be successful. God called me to be faithful. God, you call us to be faithful. God, so we, we bring in this season of Lent, moving toward the cross, the season of looking inside of ourselves, of, of allowing your words to confront us. God, we ask the question, and God, we ask you to examine our hearts to say, are there ways that we're squandering our gifts? Are there ways that we just sit back with our hands in our pockets and and keep this entrustment of your Holy Spirit to ourselves? God, is there judgment that you're speaking to us? Are there ways, God, that we are on the wrong side of your kingdom? That we are not bringing justice and love and peace into this world, but we're doing the opposite. God, speak your word of conviction to our hearts. God, and turn us around. God, we open our hands to you and we say, God, those things that you've given to us, 
And you're inviting us to use, to put to work, to do business, God, in your kingdom until you return. God, make us faithful. Help us to recognize where you're at work and to join you in your activity, God, that your kingdom may come in our homes, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our lives, here on earth as it is in heaven. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.